Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host, Dahlia Gabriel, and joining me today is a fresh new face. For some of you lucky Navara Live viewers, uh, we have Amar Dillon, who is a writer and activist. Amar, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing good, Amar. Nice to see you. So, beginning with our first story. Over the coronation weekend, the Metropolitan Police arrested 52 protesters. Demonstrators were detained using new powers granted to the police under the government's Public Order Act, which was rushed into law in the week before the celebrations. Amongst those taken into custody were Just Stop Oil protesters, who were dragged into police vans for wearing Just Stop Oil t-shirts and carrying flags bearing the flags bearing the organization's logo. Also arrested were around 14 activists from the group Animal Rising. The group, which disrupted various horse races early in the year, was holding a non-violence training workshop in Hackney, miles from the coronation, when its members were taken into custody. There were also three volunteers for Westminster City Council arrested for handing out rape alarms, water and flip-flops to Soho partygoers at 2am in the morning. And six members of the anti-monarchy group Republic were detained for 16 hours. They were picked up by police for handing out water and banners to fellow protesters, two hours before the coronation even began. Now, the Metropolitan Police have said they, quote, regret the arrests of just one of those groups, Republic. This was posted on the Met's social media last night. At 6.40am, officers working as part of the security operation in central London observed a group of people unloading items from a vehicle on St. Martin's Lane in Westminster, close to the restricted zone near the coronation procession route. Taking into account the information that people were seeking to seriously disrupt the event and the significance of the security operation, officers had been briefed to be extremely vigilant and proactive. They searched the vehicle and as well as a number, a large number of placards found items which at the time they had reasonable grounds to believe could be used as a lock-on device. Taking into account the information they had and the overall concern regarding security, six people were arrested on suspicion of going equipped for locking on, contrary to the Section 2 Public Order Act 2023. One man was also arrested for possession of a knife-slash-pointed article. According to the Met, it was not clear to the arresting officers at the time that one of the protesters had been engaging with the police protest liaison team officers ahead of the event. The Met also said the officers that arrested the protesters were not part of the protest liaison team and that the protest liaison team were not present in the area at the time of the arrests. The Met statement finishes with this. We have now fully examined the items seized and reviewed the full circumstances of the arrest. Those arrested stated that items would be used to secure their placards and the investigation has been unable to prove intent to use them to lock on and disrupt the event. This evening, all six have had their bail cancelled and no further action will be taken. We regret that those six people arrested were unable to join the wider group of protesters in Trafalgar Square and elsewhere on the procession route. So the police regret that the arrested protesters were stopped from demonstrating, but they don't regret that they hauled them into custody for being in possession of placard straps. Graham Smith, Republic CEO and one of those arrested, has appeared on Talk TV where he said this. You've had a personal apology from a senior police officer, is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, this chief inspector um, turned up at my door last night um, whilst I was in the middle of a, <laughs> another interview, um, and uh, you know he apologised. I, I, they seemed very embarrassed, to be perfectly honest. And I think you know there are a lot of decent officers out there, and I think a lot of them um, would agree that this is a mistake. The um, the Mets themselves, I don't think, have apologised. They've used this sort of woolly phrase about regretting mm. that we couldn't protest, but um, I think obviously they are aware of potential legal. Uh, implications, and we are going to take advice on lawyers about what we do next. But, but for unlawful you know, detention? Yes, absolutely. And I think we also want answers to where the decisions came from and whether there was political pressure on senior officers in the Met, because I think, as I said, it was very clearly uh, premeditated and they were f fully aware, both beforehand and on the day, that we what our plans were, and yet yeah. they still disrupt. And that's the key thing, isn't it? Because a lot of people, and again, even a government minister got in touch with me, they're being very, very clear about, well, look, you know, on the day, you know, there's a lot of pressure, they, they, there's lots of threats, they, they, they you know, you've got to know the context of this. But you say, they did yep. know what you're about your plans, and you, yes. you and when these arresting officers, say 30, 40, even 50 police officers, when they turned up, you did explain who you were and that you had permission yes. for this, um, and did you presumably have a contact name or number for somebody yep. who they could contact I, to verify yep. this? The officer said, uh, you know, I said to the officer arresting me uh, that we have had these long conversations with a uh, silver commander, a superintendent. He said, can you name that person? I said, yes, and gave him the name. And he said, well, you know, meetings don't really mean anything, do they? So he was clearly not interested. And the police said to us on numerous occasions and other police forces around the country, they said, look, you know, our concern, what we want is to avoid any surprises. If people suddenly turn up on a day, we don't know who they are, then we are concerned. And yet we did everything right. We couldn't have done any more, and they still arrested us. And anybody who thinks, you know, it was okay to arrest us, you might find yourself wanting to protest against an abhorrent government policy. You might find yourself wanting to protest against a grave injustice or against a visiting world leader who is, you know, um, persecuting their citizens. And your right to protest no longer exists, in my view, in this country. It is sort of very much contingent on whether or not the police and the ministers will allow you to do that. And that is a very serious problem in a democratic society. Wait, what? You mean the police can't be trusted even when you do everything they ask you to? Who would have thought? It's almost like we haven't been warning you guys about this this whole time. Unlike the police, uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has no regrets over the public arrests. Now, with regard to protests, you know, what I'd say is, of course, people have the right to protest uh, freely, but peacefully. But it is also right that people have the ability to go about their day-to-day -day lives without facing serious disruption. And what the government has done is give the police the powers that they need to tackle instances of serious disruption to people's lives. I think that's the right thing to do. And, and the police will make the decisions on when they use those powers. But was there nothing that happened that made you feel uncomfortable? You're right, we live in a democracy. People have got the right to protest. These people didn't have the right to protest. They were stopped from even protesting. Not that make you feel a bit uncomfortable. But we, we also live in a society where the police are rightly operationally independent of government, right? They make the decisions on the ground in the way that they see fit. That's the way that we've always done it. That's the right way to do it. It wouldn't be right for me to interfere with their operational decisions, but it is right for the government to give the police the powers they need to tackle serious disruption. Because as we've seen over the last weeks and months, there are lots of instances of people's day-to-day -day lives being seriously disrupted by protesters. And people have rightly asked, well, why isn't that being stopped? So it is right that the government gives the police the powers to to deal with those things. But again, those are operational decisions for the police on the ground at the time.
So let's just get this straight. So you rush through legislation before the coronation to give the police a whole range of new powers to stop demonstrations before they even happen. Part of that legislation uses the deliberately vague term disruption without defining it. And then when the police use these powers to arrest people exercising their legitimate right to protest, your response is, well, this is nothing to do with us. Labour, however, doesn't seem too worried either about these developments. On Good Morning Britain, this was what shadow levelling up secretary Lisa Nandy had to say. Does it look like peaceful protest is being outlawed in this country? Well, I hope not. And I don't think that was the story of the weekend. Actually, this was an enormously complex um, policing operation. We had heads of state flying in from all over the world um, and lots of members of the public out on the streets of London, including lots of protesters who were protesting peacefully. And most of that went off without a hitch. I think the Met clearly got it wrong in the case of these six protesters. I think the Mayor of London is right to say that we need to understand more about why that happened, whether it was caused by legislation or whether there were operational issues. It's not clear why Republic are getting all the attention when it comes to unlawful detention. Perhaps it's because they've been best able to operate within the media. But as I mentioned at the top, Just Stop Oil and Animal Rising members were also targeted. And there were those three safety volunteers working for Westminster City Council too. Jamie Klinger is with Women's Rights Group Reclaim These Streets. They were one of the groups who organised the Sarah Everard protest, which, of course, the Met brutally tried to suppress. She appeared on Sky News, where she spoke about those arrests of the volunteers. They're Night Stars, which is a long-established program between Westminster and the Metropolitan Police. They were in pink high-vis jackets that said Metropolitan Police. And there were three of them who were then detained for 15 hours for giving women coming out of clubs and women getting women home and having rape alarms on them. They do this every single week. This wasn't about the coronation. They were not next to people camping. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Step in and have some common sense. The fact that they were arrested blows my mind. Like the optics of Met police officers arresting women with rape alarms, it's, it, it takes some going to. Yeah, as you said, these volunteers had high-vis pink jackets on that actually had the Metropolitan Police logo on the back. And a lot of talk over if, the week... If the Met... Sorry, if the Met didn't want them to operate during Coronation Weekend, they had a year to say, we don't want Night Stars out on this weekend because of the added people that will be out in force. The people that were coming out of clubs at 2 a.m. on Friday night were not the people on the mile at 8 a.m. waiting for the king to go by. Writing in the Evening Standard, Met Police Commissioner Mark Rowley has defended the force's action, writing this. By Friday evening, only 12 hours from the coronation, we had become extremely concerned that a rapidly developing intelligence picture suggests the coronation could suffer. This included people intent on using rape alarms and loud hailers as part of their protests, which would have caused distress to the military horses. We also had intelligence that people intended to extensively vandalize monuments, throw paint at the procession and incur onto the route. Adding to our concerns, military colleagues shared their worries about how some of this disruption would significantly unsettle their 160-strong mounted regiments, with the potential of causing multiple serious injuries and compromising public safety. The threat was so concerning that on Friday, the Home Secretary and Mayor were being given late-night briefings as plans were being put in place. 
Now, that intelligence does sound pretty intense, but what actual evidence was turned up on the day? Rowley goes on to say this. But while our investigations continue, I can report that we found people in possession of possible lock-on devices and people that appeared to be purporting to be stewards of the event in possession of plastic bottles containing white paint, which we believe were specifically to be used to criminally disrupt the procession and resulted in arrests for going equipped to commit criminal damage. So possible, possible lock-on devices and bottles of paint. So no rape alarms or loud hailers that might have startled the horses. Maybe it's time for the Met to review its uh, intelligence gathering, as they like to call it. So Amar, hopefully we have you back. Are you buying what Mark Rowley is selling here? I mean, in my experience, Dalia, a good rule of thumb is just not really to trust what the police are saying. Uh, and this doesn't look like an exception to me. Um, the arrest of three night stars the night before is a particularly bad PR move aside from anything else. These night stars were brought in in the wake of Sarah Everard to address the level of public mistrust in policing uh, in efforts to protect women. Uh, and so the fact that three people working in a scheme endorsed by who work with the Metropolitan Police has been arrested is a huge embarrassment and like sounds very, very potentially unlawful to me at least. I think it's also really interesting though that um, the initial arrests for the members of the public, um, the anti-monarchy organizations, they were initially arrested under the Public Order Act, uh, the offense of being equipped to lock on. Uh, but the charge they were actually initially released under investigation for um, is conspiracy to commit public nuisance. This falls under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act that came in last year. Um, but while awful, I think it's really important we remember that very little of this is actually new, right? So the protesters arrested initially under the Public Order Act were a minority. I think it was six out of the 52 people arrested on suspicion um, of causing disruption overall. That's actually a minority of people who were arrested. Um, and the fact that they weren't actually being um, investigated under that charge is also very telling. Um, the people from Republic had contacted the police, they'd worked with them, they'd notified them, they'd done it all by the book. But the truth is that the cops have always done what they want to do using discretionary powers. They find some justification and very often the courts later on uphold that exercise of power. We've seen this previously. We've seen it with the violent policing of Black Lives Matter protesters. We've seen it with the violent policing of the Sarah Everard vigil, which Sisters Uncut led after reclaiming the streets were told that they shouldn't go ahead with the protest by the police. We saw it with the confiscation of wheelchairs from Extinction Rebellion. Uh, and this is exactly why, you know, lots of activists would advise against working with the police and against notifying them of protest plans. I think it's for this reason that I disagree slightly with some of the framing that's been put forward that says that there is no longer a right to peaceful protest in Britain. That right has always been mediated by police discretion on the ground. An example of this is over the weekend, there were protests in Wales that had almost, you know, almost no police incursions into them. Um, it's also important to remember that while our attentions are on the protests that happened just over the weekend at the coronation, just yesterday there were five further arrests at Palestine Action's siege of Elbit Systems on the outskirts of Leicester, cops smashing into parked cars to search them. Last week, a 15-year-old arrested with no responsible adult present. 
Over a week ago, at an anti-Nazi demonstration in Honor Oak in South London, police left a woman with a cracked rib, attacked a teacher for defending her school against Nazis. Sources report a child was seen being hit by police. And just last month, a trans person at a demonstration was arrested and subsequently sectioned for gender dysphoria. So I think it's really important that we recognize the bad new times that we're in with the policing and protests, but let's not fall into the trap of thinking that this represents anything new. It's always rested on the discretionary powers of the officers on the ground. Mm, And I think one thing that's difficult is, you know, this has gotten so much media coverage because in a sense, you know, uh, anti-monarchists or, you know, Republican protesters are seen more sympathetically than some of the protesters that you've spoken about, you know, like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. And so I think it's really important to have the same attention when brutal policing, when aggressive policing is used against movements that don't have that kind of sympathy in in the, you know, the public media as much as, you know, an anti-monarchy um, organization might have. So in the wake of the Met's expression of regret over the arrest of Republic protesters, it's pretty clear that some of the media are a little annoyed that the organization is getting all this attention. Have a look at this exchange between Kay Burley and Graham Smith on Sky News. This was a celebration of two to an 150 million pound uh, celebration of a institution that we oppose um and it was in that sense a political event and we wanted to make sure that the opposition had a very clear voice um and that voice was significantly disrupted and of course the voices of those arrested was completely removed um and we were not able to do that this was a peaceful know, lawful yeah. protest sure Graham, how did you know it was they, 250 million quid that's been the um, estimate put out in the media. So you wouldn't know. We'll no, just one newspaper. No, no, Graham, come on. Only one newspaper said 250 million and they've since rode back right. on it. So let's okay, stay well, with the facts. We can argue about the details. No, no, sorry. Well, I'm let's sorry. stay with you, the facts, you, should we? I'm, I'm giving you, you the opportunity to give the facts. So don't don't just give me wild speculation about numbers. It's not Officers wild speculation. Came, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was. I'm sorry, yeah, it was. we've, had, yeah, it we've was. had hours yeah, it was. of wild speculation. Wild speculation. I've done a lot of research into it. There is no way it's 250 million quid at this stage. It's very Um, easily 250 million pounds. Talk to me about the the officers coming round to your house. Do you want to tell me about the officers coming round to your house? You know, you've had uh, someone else earlier on uh, stating wild speculation, suggesting that intelligence support. Do you want to tell me about the officers coming round to your house or not? I will do, but you had someone on earlier suggesting that there was intelligence supporting the arrests. There was no intelligence supporting the arrests. Go on, tell me or don't. Do you want to have a sensible conversation and listen to what I'm I saying? I do, and I want you to tell me about the officers coming round to your house and apologising. That's yes, your okay. opportunity to say how right you were. That's exactly what I'm doing. You had someone saying that there was intelligence. Uh, there was no intelligence. There could not possibly be any, any intelligence. There was no evidence of any intent or capacity to commit any offence. And yes, the officers came round to hand back my phone um, and uh, hand back the straps that we had with us, which were not uh, capable of locking on. Kay Burley there, more interested in defending the cost of policing the coronation than actually hearing about them arresting the innocent. Uh, It's nice to see our press has their priorities straight and also that they treat activists with the same kind of scrutiny that they treat people who hold state power. That seems a little bit odd. Next story. Britain is now the proud owner of a shiny new offshore prison. This barge, due to house 500 migrant men, arrived in Falmouth earlier this morning. 
The three-story ship is called the Bibby Stockholm, and it will provide basic accommodation for asylum seekers while their applications are processed. As well as boasting natural ventilation, the Independent has revealed that the ship will give each asylum seeker less living space than an average parking bay. Despite Transport Minister Richard Holden reassuring us that this is, quote, not a prison, he also said that 24-7 security will be in place to ensure those on board do not leave the port during their stay. Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick also made clear that the barge would provide people with only the bare minimum possible standard of housing. He said this. This government remains committed to meeting our legal obligations to those who would otherwise be destitute, but we are not prepared to go further. Accommodation for migrants should meet their essential living needs and nothing more. We must not elevate the well-being of illegal migrants above those of the British people. So Tory ministers there basically admitting that the only thing worse than the standard of living under conservative rule is an offshore prison ship. Very charming. Uh, But this is not the first time the Bibby Stockholm has been used to house displaced people. When the Dutch government used it to detain migrants in the 2000s, undercover reports revealed mistreatment by prison officers, fire safety failings and accounts of rape and abuse on board. The ship was taken out of service after at least one refugee died due to inadequate healthcare facilities. But the idea of prison ships in Britain isn't actually new. It's long been a feature of the right-wing press's greatest fantasies. Former Justice Secretary Ken Clark revealed that during his tenure, he found himself being pressured by former News of the World CEO Rebecca Brooks to introduce this very policy. He wrote in his memoir, I found myself having an extraordinary meeting with Rebecca, who was instructing me on criminal justice policy from now on, as I think she had instructed my predecessor. She wanted me to buy prison ships. She was really solemnly telling me that we had had got to have prison ships because she had some more campaigns coming, which is one of her specialties. So there you have it in plain sight, the Murdoch Press to Government Policy Pipeline. Amma, one thing that strikes me here is that the 500 people who that this barge is supposed to house uh, represents a really tiny percentage, I think something like 0.3% of the backlog of asylum applications. So it's not even fit for the grotesque purpose that the government have for it. And yet it's been all over the media. So what's actually going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, one thing that's really interesting to note is that, you know, this policy has been floated before. It's been floated quite a few times in the last decade or so. Um, and it's never been seen through before. So it has come as a bit of a shock to a lot of migrant solidarity campaigners and organisers. Now, obviously, as you said, what this is about isn't actually about addressing asylum seekers or the needs of asylum seekers or indeed the asylum backlog. It's partially to a great extent about pandering to a very particular electoral base, an electoral base that is statistically older, uh, less hospitable to migrants, more likely to be, dare I say it, racist. Um, And so it's important to bear in mind when we're talking about this, though, that the way that the government and much of the media, um, and certainly Starmer's Labour Party has been talking about asylum seekers, has been of uh, an inevitable problem. But actually, the asylum backlog is itself a political choice, right? Um, An example of this is Sudan, for example, hosts one million refugees, which is four times the number of refugees that 
Britain currently hosts. There's currently um, a civil war in Sudan. And as we speak, there's a march through central, central London in solidarity with the people of Sudan and urging Britain to fast track and take in asylum seekers. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen because stoking this um, xenophobia, stoking this kind of austerity mindset, this idea that there's not enough to go around. And it's actually because of desperate people fleeing violence and poverty. Um, they're the actual reason, supposedly, that none of us are living prosperous lives of dignity. Um, but we know, of course, that's not the case. These fascistic tendencies towards migrants have been developing for a long time, uh, ever since the, the blaze, effectively, and the campaign um, which coined the term the hostile environment, which has formed the basis of government policy uh, since Theresa May instituted it. But as well as appealing to an electoral base, with migration to Europe predicted to reach one million a year in the next century, the securitization of the border is very profitable, right? So it doesn't actually matter, I don't think, uh, to the government that this barge is not going to do by itself very much to address the asylum backlog. What it's about is normalizing the dehumanization and the detention of asylum seekers, uh, because the more of that infrastructure can be built, and part of that infrastructure is the detention complex. Um, the Britain is one of the only countries that um, does indefinite detention, indefinitely detains migrants. The Rwanda scheme is another part of this, um, another very easily discernible scheme that's not going to work, but is about getting us used to uh, increased proximity to violence for asylum seekers and people that the state determines as undesirable. So this is just another part of that infrastructure in anticipation of lucrative profits for private companies and con conglomerates. And what's really interesting about um, this, this barge and the Bibi Line group, which is behind it, is that in the 19th century, vessels from this, uh, this same company were used to transport cargo produced on or within plantations. You can see a through line from the white supremacist projects that made this country rich to the securitization of the border, that's seeing asylum seekers detained and treating like criminals. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the point that you make about how the idea of the asylum backlog itself is like a deliberate form of state abandonment, you know, is really important. And also that we can, we know that things can be done differently. We've seen with the Ukraine, with Ukrainian refugees, you know, there was a similar actually in Glasgow, um, a similar, I don't know, initiative where some refugees were being temporarily held on a cruise ship um, to because, you know, while they, their asylum uh, processes, while their asylum applications were being processed, but they were able to move freely on and off. They were embedded in the local community. They were going to school. They were doing all that. And it was a couple of months while, while they were finding accommodation in the community for them to stay. That's very different to this, where it's bound up in this incredibly hostile and racist language, where deliberate kind of, there's an ongoing context of deliberate neglect, and where they're literally being held onto, on the ship and not allowed to even leave. And some of the language from local politicians has been absolutely awful. You know, when upon hearing this, you have the local mayor saying things like, 
we we oppose this ship not because it's inhumane, not because it's an offshore prison, and for all the reasons that we've talked about, but saying we oppose this because there's a risk that you know the refugees on this um, boat or this ship um, or this barge or whatever you want to call it um, might be ro- might be able to roam around amongst us and the local community. I mean, the language is just so horrific, and it really goes to show that it is a deliberate choice because we have seen historically. Um, refugees being treated differently, maybe not amazingly, but still a lot better than this. And also organizational processes that actually can process people's asylum claims without subjecting them to these really dehumanizing processes. We know this is possible and we're just choosing, I mean, we aren't, the state is choosing not to do this um, in order to, you know, appeal to their base, I guess, um, and also make a bunch of money. So on to our next story. For the first time since 2008, renters in Britain will be able to take out a mortgage with no deposit or guarantor. To qualify for the new mortgage plan, all you need is to pass a creditor's check and have a good track record of rental payments over a 12-month period. Skipton Building Society, who are offering this plan, said this. This is a lifeline to tenants to help them break out of their trapped rental cycles and get onto the property ladder for the first time. According to research carried out by Skipton, 35% of renters are struggling to save for deposits due to increased rental costs. Their claim is therefore that this will make home ownership accessible for people who can pay a monthly mortgage but don't have the savings or family wealth to cover a deposit. However, there are some concerns that the return of no deposit mortgages is reminiscent of the conditions that led to the 2008 financial crisis, when lax mortgage lending policies trapped people in debt they couldn't pay back. For more on this, here's economist and host of the Macrodose podcast, James Medway. There is a classic story about 2008. If you've watched The Big Short or any of the various documentaries, you'll have have some sense of it, uh, that what happened in the crisis was that large numbers of people were being sold mortgages that they didn't really have the wherewithal to afford, That especially in America. These are subprime mortgages. But we had some versions of that in this country uh, as well, that you have, like I said, these 120% uh, mortgages that some companies, some banks were writing out for their, their customers, where you get more than the value of your house as a loan. Um, so there's a really, there's a risk built into that for the individual all the time. Because the value of your house can actually go down as well as go up, at which point you might be in negative equity, at which point life can become uh, quite difficult for you. There's a risk also, by the way, attached uh, to what happens to interest rates. Now, you know, they're quite likely to, it's reasonably likely that these things will carry on rising for a bit longer, at least for the first part of this year. So you could end up paying more and more just on your mortgage when you were trying to save money out of the whole thing. So those are the individual risks. What happened in 2008 is that those individual risks were building up on the individuals. And then the banks came up with various, what they thought were extremely clever ways to manage those risks by packaging up bundles of these subprime mortgages, uh, mixing them in with some very safe government debt, and then selling that whole package to other different financial institutions around the world. They thought it was a clever way to manage all the risks in this process of writing large numbers of mortgages to people who weren't necessarily in a position to be able to afford them. And it sort of worked, in a sense, at least until you had house prices start to fall, you had more people being made unemployed, not being able to meet the repayments on their mortgages. These are the subprime mortgage failures in the US that start to happen from 2006 onwards. And suddenly all your clever packages and your 
clever risk management systems, they all kind of break down. And that's when you get the big systemic failure of major banks, most famously Lehman Brothers, which uh, filed for bankruptcy in September 2008. And that spreads around the world. Now, that's, that's a huge systemic problem. What we've got with what Skipton is doing, which first of all is a building society, not a bank. So it does that thing that people think banks do, but actually they don't, which is that it takes money in and then it lends out money out again. Banks don't behave like that. So it's less inherently risky as an institution. And from what Skipton is saying, they plan for this, because it's not a very big institution necessarily, they plan for this to be offered to a fairly small number of people under fairly strict conditions. So what it feels like to me is that the systemic risk, the risk that the banks involved in doing anything like this, and it's not banks at the minute, it's Skipton Building Society, the risk that they will go out and massively try and expand the amount of mortgages like this, high-risk mortgages they're offering, and build up what they think are very clever, but actually really quite stupid risk management systems that fail uh, in the event of a crisis. That doesn't seem to be there in the same way. Now, that doesn't mean we won't ever hit another financial crisis. I mean, quite the opposite. I think we will. But it does mean that it's not going to look quite the same as 2008 this time around. Immediately after 2008, there were restrictions placed on what banks could do. There was a lot more tightening of the regulation in lots of different ways around how banking behaves. So the bank system, the banking system in Britain and banking systems around the world look significantly different because of these regulatory changes to what they look like in the run-up to the 2008 crash. And to that extent, there's been a process of somewhat learning some of the lessons, right? So the immediate repeat of just literally doing what we did all over again in 2008, that risk has been reduced. The downside of a lot of the ways in which banks and mortgage lending and other parts of the market were going to be more regulated after 2008, so looking at 2009 onwards, was that it meant that it was, for example, just harder to get a mortgage as a, as a first-time buyer, that banks were suddenly really like not keen. Uh, regulators would tell him not to be keen. They were terrified of all the risks involved. Uh, it would become a lot harder to get a mortgage as a first-time buyer. You had to put down a large deposit, which obviously if house prices are still rising, this becomes a really, really difficult thing to try and get onto. And all this talk about a low interest rate environment, you know, the interest rates basically get pushed to near zero. Uh, in the wake of 2008 crisis. So coming into 2009, Bank of England cuts interest rates near zero. Federal Reserve does the same in the US. Everybody does this. That's all fine if you can actually borrow the money at that level. If you can't get a mortgage, no good telling people, oh, it's a low interest rate environment. You you can't get the low interest rates. You, You can't afford the deposit to get to the mortgage. You can't make any of these things work. So that ended up being good for people who had mortgages, Right now, in 2009, you had a mortgage, it actually potentially looked quite good because interest rates are low. Um, but bad if you're thinking about trying to buy a house because you couldn't actually get the mortgage. So what we're seeing now is potentially that one in smaller institution has identified a way to try and sell some of these mortgages to a few people. Now, what might happen is that a lot of the bigger institutions, the banks might think, well, actually, this is something we can also do. And the banks have a heavy incentive to generate large amounts of profits from this. So there's a heavy incentive for banks to oversell and to try and expand what they're selling. As I said, the, the restrictions in place, the regulations in place uh, kind of weigh against that. But that doesn't stop profit-seeking commercial banks thinking that this might be a good idea and maybe waiting to see what success or otherwise Skipton makes out of selling a, a relatively smaller number of these mortgages. That was economist James Medway. So, yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see whether these, um, perhaps slightly concerning, um, whether these mortgages spread to other lenders. Uh, Amar, 
Do you think this is going to help generation rent? Like, is this what we need as renters? I mean, I'll be honest, Dahlia, like there's very little in this that seems directly relevant to me and my friends and the people I know my age, right? I mean, recent stats are that Britain has 13.4 million people in poverty, the majority of whom are from households where at least one person is working. This is a very risky scheme for those people, even if it were to be accessible. It does nothing to address the housing bubble. It pushes the cost of property speculation um, onto renters and, and now through the scheme onto first-time buyers to get into potentially huge amounts of debt as the country teeters on recession, as work is getting more and more precarious uh, and wages in real terms are sinking. It does nothing to address the dire lack of social housing or the state of that social housing or the fact that at the moment it's more profitable or sustainable um, for social housing stocks to be sold under right to buy schemes than it is for them to be renovated and provided to people uh, who are in need. Um, and the truth is that actually not all of us want to get further and further into debt uh, to have an asset that we're then encouraged by the market to rent out at extortionate prices. Some of us just want stable and affordable homes, right? Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just not necessarily convinced exactly how much good this does for, for people like me and my mates. I mean, it, even, even the initial hurdle of passing a credit check, I couldn't tell you whether that would happen for me right now. Yeah, I think it's also just this idea that as a society, we've completely abandoned the idea of social housing as a goal. When there were real, like, good reasons why social housing was the, a big project in the kind of 20th century, because there was an idea that housing is not something that you should be anxious about keeping. It's not something you should be worried about. It's a fundamental right that everyone should have access to. It's not something you should be worried about paying your rent or paying your mortgage every month. But also one of the key points of social housing was to have people from all different kind of backgrounds living in the same building and living in, you know, building that that the state or that councils took accountability for um, and that, you know, if the conditions of that housing wasn't good, then you could democratically, you know, challenge it. Uh, and so the idea that like that as a political goal has been or as a, as a desired goal has been completely, you know, the Labour Party across the political spectrum has been abandoned in favour of just creating a homeowner's market. Um, I think we've, you know, we've really lost something there. So on to our next story. Keir Starmer's Labour Party did just about all right in the local elections. The Tories got a bloody nose for sure, losing over a thousand seats. And Labour made some good gains, including in areas that voted leave, like Dover, Blackpool and Stoke. But at 650 new councillors, those gains were nothing like what its lead in the national polls indicated. And that's led some pollsters to suggest that a hung parliament at the next general election could be likely. Given 12 years of disastrous Tory rule, that seems to show something going pretty awry with Starmer's electoral strategy. But in a series of meetings today, pre-brief notes give us some clue as to how Starmer plans to grow that local election success into a general election win. Starmer today addressed some of those new councillors at a meeting at Labour Party headquarters. Speaking before the meeting, he talked about putting the cost of living crisis at the centre of their local elections campaign. He said, Our relentless focus on the number one issue, keeping people up at night, was because we get it. 
We understand that times are tough and prices are biting, that people are making different choices, changing their lifestyles, and they're despondent about the future. Labour offered a positive alternative and people have given us their trust. It's now our duty to not waste a day in delivering on the Labour commitment to ease the squeeze on people's pockets. Delivery was a topic that kept coming up during the meeting too, where, according to The Independent, Starmer said this. Now we've got this far, it's a big, big step in the right direction. Now it's a duty to deliver. You've been elected in with a mandate to deal with the cost of living. Our duty now is to deliver on that. That's why I wanted to call together everybody today so we could have a shared focus on that duty to deliver. It's like a robot malfunctioning and every time it glitches, it just says the word deliver. Anyway, that's just me being shady. And at a weekly shadow cabinet meeting, Starmer also said this. The fact that Labour won in all parts of the country was a sign of the strides we have made. People who turned away from us during the Corbyn years and the Brexit years are coming back. But there is understandably a lot of scepticism about politics out there. And now we need to go from reassurance to hope. We need to show that we will be a big reforming government bringing hope of a better life for working people. The Tories are doing too little, too late to repair the damage they have done to the NHS. The NHS trumps woke every day of the week. So what are the big messages there? The cost of living crisis, well, that seems obviously a no-brainer, although actual policy positions are still thin on the ground. And it's true, the NHS is something that people feel passionately about. Uh, So far, Labour have promised a massive workforce expansion, but much greater involvement uh, of the private sector. And who could disagree with taking the focus off the so-called culture wars that the Tories love so much? Except I would say that Labour's often seemed pretty happy to wade into them too when it suits them. Uh, So, Amar, uh, what do you make of Starmer's analysis of what happened over the election days? I mean, I think I think the term analysis is probably too generous in lots of ways. I'm sorry, I'm still slightly reeling from Starmer's statement about the scepticism that people have of politics, having gone back on every single of the 10 pledges that he made in his uh, election campaign to be Labour leader. I wonder where that scepticism might have come from. I think it's, it's true that, you know, there have been Labour gains. Um, But I think that's much more to do with the fact that Starmer is riding the wave of people desperately wanting to get the Tories out, right? We're in the middle of austerity 2.0. We're in the middle of some of the most extreme authoritarian legislation coming into force. Um, But it's also increasingly hard to make the case actively for voting for Starmer. If For example, you're a migrant when he's said that he's not opposed to the GPS tagging of criminalized asylum seekers. If you're trans, when he's indicated that he thinks parents should be told if their child starts presenting differently to their assigned gender at birth. If you're on benefits, as he's not committed to scrapping universal universal credits. And the, the idea that Starmer can in any way be trusted on the NHS given, even despite Labour's apparent commitments to rejuvenating and maintaining the workforce, their failure to actually support the strikes. Like the mind like boggles, like what the big brain that it takes to be able to articulate these things and then still consider that people are voting for you for anything other than perceiving you to be the lesser of two evils. And I think there's a strong argument actually that for a lot of us, especially people who are marginalized or minoritized in some way, there's not actually a whole lot of difference between the two. 
And I think we'll see that actually when it comes to a general election. I'm not saying that there aren't going to be big Labour gains from the last general election, but what I am saying is I don't think that that's going to manifest in a resounding mandate for Starmerism. Yeah, I think that the problem as well is that Starmer has given the Conservative Party so much ammunition uh, that really they shouldn't have because ultimately the fact that he's reneged on so many of his policies and his pitch to become Labour leader, you can easily just turn around and say, well, if we know that you're willing to just say what people want to hear in order to get elected and then go back on all your promises, how do we know that, you know, why should the British public trust you uh, to not do the same in order to win a general election. And it's like, okay, so you've just created a massive weakness in your strategy, uh, as well as, you know, alienating so much of the Labour Party um, base. And it just, yeah, I feel like given the situation that we're in now, um, the lead should be much wider. There shouldn't be any question that there might be a hung parliament. I think that that in itself is, is pretty worrying. Right, on to our final story. In March, GB News was censored by regulator Ofcom over comments made on The Mark Stein Show. That was for airing conspiracy theory claims about the COVID-19 vaccine. Ofcom found that the show made, quote, an incorrect claim when it asserted that the UK Health Security Agency data provided evidence of a, quote, definitive causal link between a third COVID-19 vaccine and higher rates of infection, death and people being admitted to hospital. And now GB News is in hot water again. Naomi Wolf is an American journalist who appeared on Mark Stein's show in October last year. We'll play you the claims she made now, but YouTube, if you're watching, we're playing this to be critical of it. So don't block us. Mark, I'm Jewish. Mm. And, you know, I can say this. I don't mm. think I don't think you're going too far. I think you're going exactly where you should go. It was the doctors in pre-Nazi Germany in the early 30s who were co-opted by the National Socialists and sent to do exactly what we're seeing kind of replaying now. It mm. was the the medical organizations in the early 30s who were emboldened to be the um, arbiters of, you know, life worthy of life, life unworthy of life, mm. um, and to kind of medicalize and pathologize dissent or difference. Um, so we're seeing a wholesale purchasing of the medical establishment in the United States, in Britain, and in countries around the world to do things much more serious. But let me just give mm. one example. You brought this up and you're so right. I have 3,500 experts mm. um, at the War Room Daily Cloud, mm. uh, Pfizer Documents Research, volunteer effort, medical experts, scientific experts going through the Pfizer documents. Yeah. And indeed, they're finding horrific harms against human reproduction. I'm not ashamed to say it at this point. I've got so much evidence. This is why I believe these are bioweapons, because they are literally sterilizing people. They're poisoning breast milk. There's not just mRNA in breast milk. There's mm. um, there's uh, there's polyethylene glycol now in vaccinated mom's breast milk. They're damaging the placentas of women so that they can, no, no. so that we're seeing chromosomal abnormalities. And they're negatively if they're they're emasculating men essentially. A mass murder has taken place, and it's not over. The evidence you mentioned the drop in childbirth. There's a twenty mm. percent drop in mm. newborns yep, being yep. born around the world. There's a doubling of Scottish babies neonatal deaths. No, they're, um, they're reopening one of the investigations. I mean, they? you know from. Yes, I hope it's not a whitewash, mm. but there, this is a massive crime. Of course, they want to sweep it under the rug because mass murder has not just taken place. It's still taking place. That was a lot. Wow. 
Uh, after receiving 622 complaints about that segment, Ofcom has found that GB News did not take adequate steps to protect viewers from, quote, this potentially harmful content. That's in breach of the broadcasting code, as Ofcom points out. It is important to stress that in line with the right to freedom of expression, broadcasters are free to transmit programs that include controversial and challenging views, including about COVID-19 vaccines or conspiracy theories. However, alongside this editorial freedom, the Broadcasting Code imposes a clear requirement that if such content has the potential to be harmful, the broadcaster must ensure that its audience is adequately protected. Because it's now the channel's second significant breach of the code recorded against GB News, Ofcom has called GB News in for a meeting. Very ominous. Last year, Mark Stein left GB News after the channel wanted to make him personally liable for Ofcom fines. And Wolf has described Ofcom's finding as, quote, damaging censorship and a baseless reputational attack. So, Amar, could this actually be the end of GB News being able to spout this sort of stuff? I, I would like to believe so. Um, but this sort of stuff is GB News' raison d'etre, right? Like, it's why it exists. It exists to put out this kind of insane and quite dangerous rhetoric out um, into the mediascape. Um, and, and while it's important to recognise that this is obviously like mad, it's also important to remember that I think that the way that GB News is meant to operate within this like political and media ecosystem is that while not all of this insanity is going to make it to like the tabloids, not all of it is going to become, you know, normalized right wing or supposedly center talking points. Actually, quite a lot of it does. Right. Um, we're seeing this with the kind of hysteria around drag queen story hour that was kind of drummed up by the likes of Turning Point UK and people on GB News, like that's actually filtering through quite effectively into the political mainstream. Now, are GB News smart enough to start towing the line so that they don't get shut down? Um, maybe, but I always think, as funny as it is to, to laugh at just how far these guys are taking it, let's also keep one eye on the fact that they are actually having quite a dangerous impact on like far-right ecosystems within Britain on the streets, uh, and also as a result, tangible effects within political discourse and within communities too. Mm, and I think that that idea, it's the Fox News model, right? It's the move fast and break things. It's the, you know, do whatever you want, ask for forgiveness later. I think that the reason it's a bit more difficult in Britain is that we do have Ofcom, which is this regulator, which isn't kind of the model that the US have. The US kind of have a litigation-based model rather than a regulation-based model. So that might explain why it's more difficult to, you know, establish an outfit like Fox News somewhere here. But I also think that what you've said there about the the connection between sort of like the street movements uh, and the kind of conspiracy theories and the misinformation that is driving those and the framing, the dangerous framing that is driving those street movements and what's happening in channels like GB News and their kind of various social media outfits that do get decent circulation, um, I think is is really is a really important uh, is a really important point. Uh, also, what happened to Naomi Wolf? That's a whole nother conversation for another day. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Amar, for joining me tonight on your first Navara Live. I hope I went easy on you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Dali. It's been a pleasure as always. 
<laughs> and thanks everyone for watching us this evening. Make sure to come back tomorrow at 6pm for another Navara Live. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.